Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical applications. You're listening to Administrative Perspectives episode. In this annual special edition episode, we will hear from the research award winners from Asia's 2023 scientific meeting. Authors will be given five minutes to present their award-winning work and discuss any future directions. We hope you enjoy the episode and hope to see you at next year's meeting in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where you may have the opportunity to have your work presented on the podcast. I'm your host today, Marla, and today we have Dr. Jia Liu. Dr. Liu was the award winner first place for oral presentation for her work, Loss of Cortical Inhibition in Chronic Spinal Cord Injury, Clinical Implications for Sensory Motor Impairment, Functional Capability, and Self-Care Independence. Welcome, Dr. Liu. Thank you, Mala. I'm really, it's an honor for me to be here with you, and and I'm excited about this opportunity to share our work together today. Well, we're very excited to have you. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Jia Liu. I'm currently a postdoc fellow working with Dr. Yila Plow at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, prior to joining Dr. Plow's lab, I completed my Master of Medicine in Rehabilitation Medicine and Physical Therapy in China, Beijing Sport University, and my PhD in Biokinesiology at the University of Southern California. Great. And tell us about your project. I'm interested in understanding underlying mechanisms of neurorecovery following uh, neurological conditions such as spinal cord injury and design of novel cost-effective neurorestorative treatments. Over the past two years, I've been working on my mentor, Dr. Plow's nationwide multi-center phase two clinical trial funded by the Department of Defense. This trial is to investigate the potential of non-invasive brain stimulation using transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, in conjunction to conventional rehab and motor recovery in people with chronic cervical SCI. I'm very honored to be able to share uh, some very very exciting findings uh, using the data collected at the baseline of this clinical study at the Asia conference this year. In this subproject, we studied clinical implications associated with a central component of neuroplasticity following SCI, uh, which is cortical disinhibition. Cortical disinhibition refers to the reduction of inhibitory networks within the brain. The basic idea is that following SCI, the intact brain has amazing capacity to undergo neuroplastic changes. This reduction in inhibitory control allows latent cortical spinal neurons to be unmasked to send descending drives to the impaired spinal cord, compensating for the diminished cortical motor excitability. In simple terms, you can think of this as a way of the nervous system trying to rescue the impaired connections between the brain and the spinal cord. So, well, at acute or subacute stage of SCI, cortical disinhibition may enhance neuroplasticity and benefit functional recovery. However, during the chronic stage of SEI, the spontaneous recovery is limited. But this chronic loss of cortical inhibition along the descending cortical motor pathway may contribute to an inability to suppress unwanted movements and hence results in worsened function and self-care independence. So in this study, we used transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, 
applied upon the scalp to probe the characteristics of cortical motor inhibition. We studied a total of 20, 35 participants with chronic cervical SCI and compared them to 20 neurotypical controls. Consistent with literature and our own hypothesis, we found reduced cortical inhibition in people with chronic cervical SCI. But what's really novel about our study is that we reviewed significant correlations between this cortical disinhibition and the sensory motor impairment, functional abilities, and self-care independence, which is across three domains of WHO ICF framework. So this suggests that individuals who are left with, uh, who are less impaired, better functional, and more independent, have more residual cortical inhibition control. To our knowledge, this is the, really the first, first study that have reviewed the value or the clinical value of inhibitor network in control of upper limb motor function in people with chronic cervical SCEI. And what are the next steps and future goals of your work? Yeah, so while this cross-sectional study is limited to infer causations, we are currently at the last year of concluding our clinical study. So we are eager to examine whether changes of the upper limb function after intervention would be associated with changes in cortical disinhibition, as well as other neurophysiology metrics such as cortical excitability. I'm also very excited to share that I'll be recently awarded as a postdoc fellowship from Craig Nelson Foundation starting this late July. So I'll be very looking forward to presenting the results of my fellowship project at future Asia meetings. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Liu, and congratulations on your award. Thank you very much, Mala. So today we have Abdul Aziz Al Hussein, who won second place poster presentation at this year's Asia Mid-Year Meeting. So welcome, Abdul. Oh, thank you so much for bringing me here today. Um, my name is Abdul Aziz Al Hussein. I'm a third-year medical student at Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. So tell us about your project. Did you know that multiple studies have shown that 69% of patients with spinal cord injury have reported worsening vision and visual processing after the onset of their injury? We think that this is a serious problem, which is why we've made a commitment to investigate this issue further. In just the past couple of years, numerous research studies have shown deficits or impairments in several categories, including motor and sensory function, pain, vision, and other forms of neurological processings. But how can we define spinal cord injury in the first place? To be concise, spinal cord injury is a disturbance to the spinal cord that can cause either temporary or permanent changes in the cord's normal autonomic, sensory, and motor functions. However, because the human body is intricately interconnected, spinal cord injury can affect other organs such as the brain. Spinal cord injury can cause reorganization of the brain's gray matter, and it can also alter the functional connectivities between essential brain regions, such as the primary motor cortex and sensory motor brain areas. These impairments have shown to be severely debilitating as time progresses and need to be further addressed. The impact of spinal cord injury on vision and visual processing relative to other processing modalities has not been yet explored as much.
In our research, we investigate the association between spinal cord injury and visual impairments seen in patients by looking at microstructural changes in visually related brain regions. We did that through using resting state functional MRI, and our hypothesis suggested that patients with spinal cord injury will demonstrate significantly different bilateral functional changes and connectivities in visual related brain areas compared to uninjured healthy controls. By using toolboxes such as DPABI, which stands for Data Processing and Analysis of Brain Imaging, to analyze our images that we obtained from the resting state functional MRI, we were able to obtain data on the resting state quantitative measures for each participant. Our data for the resting state quantitative measures provides us with the specific functional oscillations found in each brain analyzed during rest. By doing so, we were able to compare these measures between patients with SCI and uninjured healthy controls. We specifically explored 37 regions of interest that were selected from a functional atlas of human occipitotemporal visual cortex, which are visually related brain regions. We've categorized each region of interest based on its function and its selectivity. The selectivities were to analyze the faces, bodies, characters and places, motion, and being retinotopic, which refers to the processing of complex visual information. Our results aligned with the hypothesis that we've made and that bilateral regions from all categories were seen to have significant changes relative to the controls. One finding that was particularly interesting is that there were no changes in the V1 cortex, which mainly assists in seeing an image. Instead, there were changes in the V2 and V3 regions, which indicates that vision itself might not be directly impacted in SCI patients, but rather complex visual processing like color and texture might be. This data might suggest the theoretical basis behind the effects of SCI patients' visual feedback training and motor functional rehabilitation. It can also lead to the future development of visual-related rehabilitation therapies that might be more effective than the currently available technologies. And with this research, we can get a step closer to relieving one of the main vital impairments that can be seen in SCI patients after their debilitating injury. Excellent. And what are the next steps and future goals in your research? Some next steps in our study would be to increase the sample size across both controls and SCI patients because we had a total of 22 participants, seven of which were patients with SCI and 15 of which were uninjured healthy controls. Another next steps would be to look at more specific regions of interests. For example, rather than only looking at 37 regions of interests, we can look at more than that and to develop a more extensive atlas to explore these regions of interests. Additionally, we would want to look at their connectivities based on more advanced resting state quantitative measures than the ones that we explored. Through that, we will be able to understand the functions of the regions of interests further. Awesome. Today we have Dr. Caitlin Peters, who won third place for best poster for her work titled Effects of Metadrin Administration over a 30-day period compared to placebo on blood pressure and cerebral blood flow velocity 
and cognitive performance in persons with SCI. So welcome, Dr. Peters. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure. Can you uh, introduce yourself for us? Sure. My name is Caitlin Peters. I have a PhD in movement science. I'm a junior scientist from the James J. Peters VA Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, and I specialize in the secondary consequences of autonomic and cardiovascular impairment after a spinal cord injury. Excellent. And tell us about your project. Yeah, so as we know, individuals with spinal cord injury at and above T6 experience impaired autonomic nervous system control, which predisposes them to hypotension. Hypotension has been associated with a decrease in exercise performance, cognitive slowing, and adversely impact quality of life. Midadrin, um, an alpha-1 adrenal receptor agonist, increases vascular tone and blood pressure. So the purpose of my investigation was to determine the effects of Minadrin compared to placebo over 30 days in the home environment on blood pressure, cerebral blood flow velocity, and cognitive performance in hypotensive individuals with chronic SCI. This was a prospective randomized double-blinded crossover trial that was conducted in 15 individuals with tetraplasia. In the first 30-day period, Five participants were randomized to minadrin and 10 were randomized to placebo. Participants were then crossed over to the second 30-day period following a 14-day washout. So as expected, systolic blood pressure significantly increased following minadrin administration compared to placebo over 30 days. In addition, diastolic cerebral blood flow velocity was increased after minadrin administration. However, there were no significant drug by time interaction effects for systolic or mean cerebral blood flow velocity and cognitive performance. Awesome. And what are the next steps and future goals for your work? Yeah, so although minadrin significantly increased the solid blood pressure in these individuals, identifying another safe and effective antihypotensive treatment option that not only normalizes blood pressure, but improves cerebral blood flow velocity and cognition is very important in these individuals. So our next step is to look to see if transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation is effective and safe at normalizing and maintaining blood pressure in hypotensive individuals with SCI and to see if long-term use of the stimulation can help improve cognition. Awesome. And today we have Dr. Jenny Kuratli, who won third place for best oral presentation for her work, Healthcare Experiences of LGBTQ Plus Persons Who Live with Spinal Cord Injury. Welcome, Dr. Kuratli. Thank you. Could you tell us about yourself? Sure. So I am the Director of Clinical Research in Spinal Cord Injury at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. I want to tell you about our research that was funded by the VA Health Services Research Service and also Craig H. Nielsen Foundation. Before I start, I wanna make sure to shout out to my um, colleagues in this project, Shane Lamba and Allison Warren and Andrea Nevidal. The study is conducted uh, all through qualitative interviews and to participants across the country. We're talking to individuals who 
identify as LGBTQ+, that is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, and other identities, capturing a wide array of um, identities. And we're also speaking with providers who are spinal cord injury specialists and um, provide care in the VA or non-VA um, spinal cord injury centers. Great. Tell us about your project. So um, this project is looking at the um, experiences of people who are LGBTQ plus and also live with spinal cord injury. Um, we're interested in the impact of their sexual and gender minority identity on their mental and physical health care needs. Um, and this is really the first uh, work in this area. There in recent decade or so, there's been a growing amount of information about the healthcare needs of the LGBTQ plus community, but uh, no prior studies that we're aware of that looks at the disability community. I'll, I'll start with a very quick definition of sexual orientation and gender identity to be sure everybody's sort of aware of the terms and the differences. People, the, the sexual orientation refers to lesbian, gay, bisexual individuals. Uh, gender identity is uh, people who are transgender or intergender and have a non-binary identity. Another term that I may use is sexual and gender minorities, which is a, a sort of an over, overarching uh, term. The needs and the experiences of um, individuals based on their sexual orientation and their gender identity may differ. At this point, since this is um, an initial study in this area, we decided to reach out to all members of the, uh, the LGBTQ plus community and begin to collect information. We very much may move forward in focusing on issues that are specific to gender identity experiences or specific to the, the influence of sexual orientation. Let me tell you about some of our initial findings. The um, participants with spinal cord injury just report instances of discrimination, such as dating in the queer community, feeling discrimination about being in a wheelchair, um, and also microaggressions, being talked to like a baby, stared at, looked at differently. However, some of the people we talked to said they were really oblivious to any discriminations. It's kind of an interesting, um, different perspectives when you talk to multiple people. Most of the people said that they were comfortable with their SCI providers, knowing their sexual orientation or their gender identity. But many of them were still cautious about sharing this amount of personal information, uh, not knowing how it might be used against them. They, in general, felt that their providers didn't really know very much, and they were wishing that there was more information available to their providers about uh, their, their um, identities and about their needs. This was echoed when we talked to SCI providers. They said they really didn't know what they didn't know, as a quote, regarding the LGBTQ plus health um, issues. 
They, in general, said they were comfortable working with this community, but in general, they did not ask questions about sexual orientation or gender identity. Some of them thought it was too personal. Some thought it wasn't necessary to their care. Um, and they just didn't know how to bring up this conversation. The providers also commented that um, they knew that bowel and bladder care may differ very much for a gay man versus a straight man um, who's having anal sex, for instance. Occupational therapy for trans patients in involved quite a few adjustments that, for instance, teaching a transgender man who has spinal injury how to apply makeup was something that one of the uh, occupational therapists talked about in great detail. Some providers said they didn't really think there was many differences in their healthcare needs and that they wouldn't approach the patients differently regardless of their sexual and gender status. Mental health providers often talked about SCI-related mental health needs, such as anxiety, depression, coping to adjustments of spinal cord injury. So there really were a lot of comments uh, from both the patients as well as the providers that uh, looked at the intersection of the spinal cord injury and the LGBTQ plus identity. But we heard quite a bit from participants um, who had spinal cord injury about not being not being able not feeling that they fit in to the queer community. Often the spaces for meetings were non-accessible. There's a focus on, in many cases, there's a focus on sort of physical appearance and individuals who were in wheelchairs and living with spinal cord injury commented they didn't feel comfortable with that. They felt they were being stared at. So there was quite a bit of focus on the lack of community, which is really an interesting finding because community support is so important in both spinal cord injury and also for members of the uh, LGBTQ plus community. So individuals finding that they didn't feel community with either groups and they didn't find people like them to interact with was um, was an, uh, maybe an unexpected finding. Some of the people, however, who we talked to didn't feel that they uh, really differentiated between their identity and their spinal cord injury, and they didn't feel that they'd uh, experienced much that was different. So it's it's been quite an interesting experience to talk to so many different people and hear how they, how they uh, project their positive and negative experiences. Great. What are the next steps and future goals of your work? So we are still recruiting and continuing uh, to collect information. These are preliminary findings, but we hope to collect more interviews. But where we want to go with uh, the, the data and the information as we've collected it is towards improving access to quality care for this patient population by identifying actual unmet needs, areas that the uh, healthcare centers are not providing appropriate care and also training for providers. Um, one of the biggest areas that uh, we found was lacking, and this came from both the participants with spinal cord injury and the providers we spoke to, is in the area of sexuality. 
um, of course, sexuality is a major focus in spinal cord injury care and early in spinal cord injury rehab, but the the sexuality information that is provided is primarily heteronormative, which means the patients don't feel comfortable asking about um, support for gay sex. The providers don't really have knowledge to give information to help support the patients. And so this is an area that we would really like to focus on developing training information, developing resource guides, that sort of thing to fill that gap. Because of course, sexuality is a major area of um, concern for people with spinal cord injury. So I'd say con continuing the research and focusing on developing resources and education and training, particularly focused at providers within the healthcare system. Perfect. Hey listeners, this is one of your other hosts, David, coming to you with a clearinghouse note. Asia has a rich awarding tradition of presentations given at the annual meeting. While all of last year's awardees were invited to speak on the podcast, you'll find that not all of their voices and projects are represented. So to learn about all of the 2023 Asia awardees and their illustrious projects, head on over to Asia's website. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts David McMillan and Marla Petrillo, our editor Abby Fox, production assistant James Concepcion, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI's Perspectives Podcast at gmail.com.